wish a good morning to those who are here with us in the room, as well as those may, who may be joining us uh, online. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet uh, in person, my name's Chris. I get to be one of your pastors here at New Life. If you are new or newer to New Life, and I know there are a lot of new faces around here, uh, I want you to know your first step here is something that we call Journey 101. It's a Journey 101 luncheon that we have here right after this service, um, right upstairs in the loft um, and that our next one will be next Sunday. So next Sunday, um, we'll kind of hang out, have lunch together, uh, cast a little vision about who we are as a church, where we feel like God is taking us as a faith family. So if you have not been to a Journey 101 luncheon, would encourage you to go to our website today, newlifeofashville.com, next steps. You can register, super easy. And then we'll just kind of hang out for an hour uh, for, for lunch next Sunday after the 11 o'clock service. Now, if you are newer to New Life, uh, you may not know this. If you've been around a while, you do know this. We are in a series, a sermon series, in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's Jesus' longest recorded uh, sermon in the Gospels. And uh, can, can I just be honest with you? Is this a safe place right now? Can I be honest? It has been way harder to preach than I anticipated. It's been way harder to preach. Like, I don't know about you, I'm I'm sore. Right? It's just, I feel like it's been like rib shot, body blow, uppercut uh, for the last several weeks. And it's just been tough. Like, who, who, let, me, who let me choose a series? I don't know who's, who's responsible for that. The elders, the pastors, my wife. I don't know. I'm looking for somebody to blame. Um, but here's, here's what I know through it all. Um, through the pain, through the really challenging messages, here, here's what I'm convinced of. God is good. God is good. And here's the thing, if we really believe that, then we can trust that what he says to us in his word is also good, even when it's painful. It brings to mind, uh, at least for me, the quote from Charles Spurgeon, the, the late great English preacher said this, to submit to a creator who is too wise to err and too good to be unkind should not be hard. But if we're being honest, sometimes it is hard, isn't it? And we need his help. And so let's ask for it now. God, we come to you and as we step into uh, your word, our confession would just simply have to be, uh, sometimes these are hard truths for us to hear, God. They fly in the face of everything that we feel. They fly in the face of everything our culture tells us. They challenge us at the heart level, the soul level, in very painful and uncomfortable ways. And so, God, I pray that if, if we're coming in here with our kind of our guards up, our walls up, I pray that just by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring those down, that we would trust in your goodness and that the things that you say to us are ultimately for our good. I pray that you would create soft landing spaces in our hearts and our souls so that we could receive these truths uh, from you as good uh, together this morning. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you remember last week, uh, Jesus began a series of six statements that start like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you, right? So six times, he kind of goes through that same sequence. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so basically what he's doing is he's taking these Old Testament laws, many of them and the 10 commandments, and he's, and he's saying, hey, you've heard the Pharisees, the religious teachers teach them this way and give you these applications, but they've done so wrongly. And so what I want to do is give you the, the actual meaning of these commandments and the actual uh, applications as it, as it fits into my kingdom. So he's, he, six statements. We covered the first two last week. We hit on anger and lust. And this week we're hitting on marriage and divorce. So another round of super light, easy, non-controversial uh, things, okay? I did switch emails this week. So rhowell, rhowell at nlcca.org. And uh, so if you disagree with anything I say, please email me. From the outset, from the outset, let me just say this. I know, I know that this is an extremely difficult, extremely painful topic for many of you in the room and for many of you watching online. There are very few of us who have not been impacted by this, either directly or by someone that we know, we love, a kid, an aunt, a sibling, we, we've all been touched by, by this topic. So listen, just know I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm pressing on some really tender places uh, this morning in your hearts and in your souls. And, and, and my goal is to be, to be clear, to give you the truth, but to do it in a, in a compassionate way. And so that's, that's kind of the goal this morning. If you, listen, if you've been through divorce, you're here this morning, you've walked through divorce. If you're here and you're walking through a really difficult marriage, 
which I know many of you are. Uh, here, here's my challenge for you. W- would you. Would you just commit to hang with me to the end? Just hang, hang with me to the end. So just give me, give me 40 minutes of your time. Please resist the temptation to get mad, to walk out, to reject what I'm about to say, or to just tune me out. Because my, my hope is, anyway, by the end of our time together today, you'd walk out of here, regardless of where you are, with a lot of hope, regardless of past or current circumstances. So that would be my challenge for you. Now, but here's the thing. Before we talk about divorce, we, we have to talk about what marriage is first. Because divorce makes no sense without the backdrop of understanding what marriage is. So specifically, I think we have to talk about, we have to contrast what the word says about marriage against the backdrop of what culture is currently saying about marriage, right? Now, now culture is currently selling us a couple of ideas, I would argue false ideas, about what marriage is. So I'll just give them to you and then we'll talk about God's view. Here's one idea that's becoming more and more common in our culture, particularly if you're on a secular college campus. It goes something like this. Marriage is an oppressive institution created by the patriarchy to demean and abuse women. And I just want to tell you, particularly if you're on one of those college campuses, nothing could be further from the truth. Absolutely nothing could be further than the, than the, from the truth. Now think about this. In the garden, the first, the first marriage, Adam and Eve, right? We're in the book of Genesis. Uh, it, Genesis tells us that men and woman, the first man, the first woman, the first marriage are created equally, right? So, so different, different in function. We talked about that uh, two or three weeks ago when we talked about gender in the Bible. But, so different in function, but equal in, in value, dignity, and worth. Why? Because we're both created, man and woman, in the image of God, right? And the, the ramifications of that one doctrine, the, Im, the Imago Dei, what scholars call the Imago Dei, the image of God, the, just the ramifications of that one doctrine for women's rights throughout history has been astounding. In fact, you may not know this, but for the first, I don't know, three or four centuries of church history, one of the main attractions to the Jesus movement was Christian marriage in the Christian home. Did you know that? That was one of the primary things that drew pagan Romans and Greeks to Christianity was not necessarily the doctrine that was being espoused by the apostles or the church pastors, but it was the beauty of the Christian home and the Christian marriage. And that was true for, again, for the first three or four centuries. And the reason it was, it was such an attractive thing is because Christian marriage and the Christian home was viewed as a safe haven, particularly for women and children. So again, that's one lie that you kind of hear in our culture. The other lie that you hear our culture kind of parade out there is that the primary purpose in marriage is kind of this passionate, romantic, uh, warm, fuzzy, sexual fulfillment, kind of goofy stuff we get from Hollywood, things like that, right? And so if you adopt that view of marriage, when the flames of passion begin to dissipate, as they inevitably will... Then, then that must mean, if you take this position on marriage, that must mean something has gone irreversibly wrong in my marriage. It's time to get out. It's, it's time to find somebody else who kind of stokes those feelings of romance and passion and eroticism. Now, now here's the problem. You may not know this, but um, the problem with that is that psychologists tell us now in study after study that that whole, that googly eyes, kind of warm fuzzy when they walk in the room, that kind of erotic sort of passion, like I just can't get enough of him or enough of her, that, that for anybody, any person or any couple, that lasts on average between 18 months and a maximum of three years. So you get 18 months or three. Now, that's not to say that you can't rekindle some of those romantic things in your marriage because I think you certainly can. But, it, but if that's your view of marriage and then that starts to go away after 18 months to three years, what's gonna happen? You just begin to bounce from one relationship to the other and one marriage to another and it just leaves us in quite a predicament as we can see in our culture today, right? Where we've got this epidemic of divorce that we're just drowning in as a culture. In fact, statistically, about 50, slightly above 50% of all marriages in our country end in divorce now, which is wild. So I, I just want to say, I want, I want to challenge you. If you've adopted the culture's view, either one of those views of marriage, I just want to challenge that in love and say, I think you've adopted uh, a lesser view of marriage. And I think the Bible paints a, a far more compelling, a far more beautiful picture of what marriage is, what the purpose of marriage is. Think about Genesis 2, 24. It says this, a man should leave his father and his mother. And he uses the word cleave. It's this idea of commitment, covenant commitment. Not a flimsy, hey, until, it, until the, the warm fuzzies go away. 
No, no, it's a cleave, this covenant commitment to his wife. And the two shall become, you, you finish it for me, one flesh, one flesh. And it's the stunningly mysterious idea of uh, the mingling of souls. Two souls are joined together and they mingle together and somehow divinely, mysteriously become one entity. Now, we don't understand that fully, but we see it play out in different ways, right? And so we talked about this last week. Sex was always intended to knit our soul to another, which again is why sex within the confines of marriage is such a beautiful gift and why outside of the realm of marriage, sex can become a destructive curse. Now, not only is marriage this kind of mysterious mingling of, of two human souls, I want you to watch what the Bible says in Malachi chapter two. Watch this, this will be on the screens for you. It says this, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now watch verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Did you catch that? Now that's stunning. He's saying, what God is saying is, listen, when you got married, there were three people taking part in that ceremony. The husband the wife, and the Spirit of God. You say, Chris, how on earth does that work? And here's my answer, deep theological. I don't know. I don't know. How's that for a pastoral Jesus juke? I, I have no clue how that works. All I know is this is a mystery, but God is saying, listen, marriage is not just an agreement between two people that gets annulled when it gets hard. He's saying there's, there's actually something mysterious and divine that takes place when a man and a woman look at each other in the face, in the eyes, and say, until death do us part. Now you flip over to the New Testament, and here's what we see Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 5. He says this, again, going back to hyperlinking to Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, this idea of clinging again, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become, here it is again, one flesh. Now watch verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul elevates it. Paul escalates it even further when it comes to the meaning of marriage. And he goes, hey, listen, the point of marriage is not some hallmark movie level of feelings. The point of marriage is to paint a picture of Jesus and his relentless love for his bride, the church. And friend, how has Jesus loved his bride? He looked at his bride and he said, until death do his part, and he really meant it. As he went to the cross and he went to the grave and he rose again to make sure that he could be with her forever. And that, that's why you need to understand when we say Jesus loves you here at New Life and we say that often, we don't mean some sort of hallmark, flimsy, warm, fuzzy feelings version of love that our culture and Hollywood peddles. When we say God loves you or Jesus loves you here at New Life, we're, we're talking about the active, gritty, sweat and blood, patience and endurance kind of love that Jesus displayed for us, his bride. That's important for us to remember as the bride of Jesus, we've not always been easy to be married to, have we? Right? If we're the bride of Jesus, man, we're bridezilla. Right? Don't we betray his love on repeat every single day of our lives? And yet he's been patient with us. He's forgiven us again and again, putting up with our pettiness, with our inclination to chase after other lovers over and over and over again in our lives. All that to say this, and this is truth number one on the screens for you. Marriage matters to God. Marriage matters to God. It's a, it's a big deal in his kingdom. This is why Jesus addresses it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a big deal for him. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, it ought to be a big deal to you. We've got to cultivate this high view of marriage because Jesus held to a high view of marriage. Now, let me just speak to the singles in the room because I know anytime I start talking about marriage, you go, oh gosh, here we go again. Another sermon on family, another sermon on marriage has nothing to do with me. I'm just gonna scroll through Insta or whatever it is. Listen, if you're single, please don't tune out. There's something for you here, I believe, this morning because if you're not married, 
and you're in the room today, but you one day hope to be married, here's the deal. You need a healthy view of marriage now, not after the fact. Man, I cannot, I cannot emphasize that enough. You need to develop a healthy theology of marriage and divorce now on the front end, not after the fact. And if you've been called to a life of singleness, like Paul, like Jesus, if that's your calling, I want you to know, uh, man, you belong. You're a part of this family. You're not a second-class citizen. You're a part, an integral part of this family. Jesus himself, who's given us this sermon, was a single man in his 30s, right? So don't, don't, if you're single, don't tune out a lot for you here, I think. Married friends, let me just say this to you. Please, as we walk through this, don't see the normal difficulties of marriage as a sign that something has gone cataclysmically wrong in your life or a call to get out. As citizens in the kingdom of Jesus, we want to, we must cultivate a high view of marriage. One that sees perseverance as a virtue and divorce as a last resort, okay? Does that make sense? All right, now that we got the backdrop of what marriage is, what culture says it is versus what God says it is, uh, let's, let's see what Jesus has to say about divorce. Matthew chapter five, Angelica just read this to us. It says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. We'll get to that in a minute. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus gives more context to this teaching in Matthew 19. So it'll be on the screens for you. Here it goes in verse three. And the Pharisees came up to him, Jesus. They were testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read he who created from the beginning made them male and female? So we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about gender, right? There are two genders. That's God's design. That's good. Regardless of what our culture says, that's a good thing. He created them male and female, verse five, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Again, hyperlinking back Genesis one and two, hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? We saw that in Matthew 5, and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts. Now that's key. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And I love the disciples' reaction. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to even marry. Uh, they, they hear Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, and they go, we can't do this. This is way too hard, Jesus. Why are you being so legalistic about this? This is too hard. Like, Jesus, if that's the case, better to be single than to, than to pursue this vision of marriage. Like, they react the same way we react. This is too hard. The same way I react as I studied this week. The same way some of you are feeling that weight right now. Like, this is, this is too hard. Now, let me, this is important. Let me give you a little historical context to what Jesus is speaking into. Because the question is, is Jesus giving a comprehensive overview of his theology of marriage and divorce here, or is he speaking to a specific situation in the culture, right? This is really important. In that day, there were actually two uh, rabbinic schools of thought. You had the, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, and they disagreed on the re per permissible reasons for divorce. It was all based on Deuteronomy 24.1, so I'm gonna show that to you right now. Uh, this is what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some, and here's the key word in the whole deal, indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, that's what Jesus was talking about, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of, out of his house. So, so one group of rabbis taught that the only ground for divorce, that word for indecency, it was sexual immorality. Okay, so that was one school of thought. There was another group of rabbis who uh, interpreted that word indecency to mean you can divorce your wife for anything. Now, which interpretation do you think most men went with? <laughs> you already know, right? They went with the interpretation that says I can divorce for any reason, right? In fact, this is the position that the Pharisees took. We, we tend to think of the Pharisees as like these really rigid, legalistic, they had the most liberal view on this. So let me, let me just read you some of the permissible reasons to divorce your wife 
according to these knuckleheads, the, the Pharisees, all right? And these are legit. You can find these in rabbinic writings from thousands of years ago. Uh, and and this is, these are all reasons you could divorce your wife. Number one, if she burned your dinner. Crunchy chicken, babe, out, out. If she got warts or leprosy. Is that a wart on your leg, boo? You best be packing. Now, this, this one's hard to believe. If her head was wedge-shaped, turnip-shaped, hammer-shaped, or flat at the back. All you flat-headed people, y'all best be getting some hairdos to cover that mess up. Uh, if she had poor posture, get them shoulders back. If she had bushy eyebrows... <laughs> Or a pug nose. I don't even know what that is. If she had eyes big like a calf or small like a goose, <laughs> you could divorce your wife. Or if you just saw another woman that you found more attractive, if she was prettier than you, you literally could go home, you could write a certificate of divorce, you give it to her, and it was approved by the rabbis, the spiritual leaders of the day. Now understand this, as much as we laugh at some of that goofy mess, this was absolutely a serious thing. This was a one-way street. Man could divorce for any reason, and it was almost, not, not totally, but almost impossible for a woman to get a divorce, even if she had legitimate reason. This culture of loose divorce led to devastating oppression for women in the days of Jesus. I want you to listen to Dallas Willard as he describes the cultural condition of the day in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He writes this, in the Jewish society of Jesus' day, as for most times and places in human history, the consequences of divorce were devastating for the woman. Except for some highly unlikely circumstances, her life was simply put ruined. No harm was done to the man by contrast, except from time to time a small financial loss. For the woman, however, there were only three realistic possibilities in Jesus' day. She might find a place in the home of a generous relative, but usually on grudging terms, and as little more than a servant. She might find a man who would marry her, but always as damaged goods. Or she might finally, and this was very common, make a place in the community as a prostitute. Society simply would not then, as ours does today, support a divorced woman to any degree or allow her to support herself in a decent fashion. These circumstances explain why Jesus says that to divorce a woman causes her to commit adultery. To not marry again was a terrible prospect for the woman. It meant, in nearly every case, to grow old with no children as well as with no social position, a perpetual failure as a human being. But to marry was to live in a degraded sexual relationship the rest of her life, and precious few husbands would allow her to forget it. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is specifically tearing at the fabric of a system of divorce that impoverished the women of his day. Don't ever, friend, don't ever let anyone tell you that Christianity is a misogynistic, sexist worldview. Jesus elevated the position of women in society like no one in history has ever done, either before his time or since. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, hey, listen, guys, Moses allowed you a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. Not because that was ever God's intent or design. And now you guys have taken that one concession because of the sinfulness of your own hearts and you have turned it into a system of perpetual abuse against our sisters. And Jesus says, but not in my kingdom. Not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, you'll cherish your wife. You'll love your wife and you'll serve her. You'll practice gritty love. The kind of love that sweats and sacrifices for one another. And yet Jesus is realistic. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible is it's, it's not unicorns and rainbows. It's, it's reality. Jesus is cognizant of the fact that we live in a broken, fallen system because of sin that's entered into the world. And sometimes, in rare cases, divorce is permissible, allowable, and sometimes, sadly, even necessary. Now, before we get into the permissible reasons for divorce, I want you to understand that while divorce is sometimes permissible in God's eyes. It's never preferable. Do you understand the difference? Permissible 
not preferable. That's, that's important. I want you to hear me say that. Now, this is, this is how we see, if, you, if you're wondering like, okay, so what's new life stance? How, how does new life see divorce? This is how we see divorce. It's like an amputation. That's how, that's how we view divorce. Now, if you were to go to a doctor and every time you had a bruise or a nick or a cut or a hangnail and he said, I want to amputate, what would you say about that doctor? What would you say about that doctor? You'd say, he's crazy. She's crazy. Like they should lose their medical license. They're, they're not a good doctor. And you would be right. That, that's a bad doctor that wants to amputate for any reason. And I would argue that the culture of no-fault divorce that we live and breathe in today is no different than a doctor who amputates for a hangnail or a bruise. Now, now listen, y'all. Marriage, you need to understand this. Even the best of marriages are in some sense one long string of irreconcilable differences. If you've been married for over a year, just go ahead and say amen. All right? Now listen, I'm just telling you, my wife expects me every time I go into the restroom to lift the toilet seat and put it down. Ain't nobody got time for that. I mean, what? Middle of the night, I'm trying to stay, I'm trying to stay asleep, not wake up. Like, if you don't want to fall in the toilet, to use your eyeballs and see what's, what's there, right? She, she expects me to put my, my laundry in the laundry basket, not beside it. I got it close, boo. Why are we being legalist about, legalist about this, right? Here, here's the deal. Mo, most of you, for those of you who are married, most of you married your opposite. And here's the thing. If you were exactly the same, one of you would be unnecessary. Now, I can go ahead and tell you, husbands, who the unnecessary one's going to be. But Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, marriage is not the kind of thing that you bail on because she burned the chicken or has a pear-shaped head, right? Like that, the, the just, or, or she's mean to me or he's just not romantic enough or anything like that. So what are the biblical allowances for divorce? Now, I thought about giving you kind of the four or five historical views in the church. The reality is, I don't have time <laughs> to, to get into that. You can, you can research that uh, on your own time, I, I suppose. But I'm just gonna give you, after a couple dozen hours of study the last two weeks, uh, kind of where, where I land, all right? Now, let me preface what, what I'm about to say by saying there are godly men and godly women who disagree uh, and land in different places than I have on permissible reasons for divorce. There are some of you in the room who are gonna think I, I went too far. There are some of you in the room who are, who are gonna think I didn't go far enough. Okay, so email me rhowell at nlcca.org. Here's the deal. I would just, I would encourage you, study the scriptures for yourself. They're all there. Study the scriptures about marriage and divorce for yourself and ask Holy Spirit to just help you land in the, in the right spot. But I, I'm just gonna tell you where I land, all right? So this is not like official new life covenant policy. or anything. This is just where I stand. Uh, Jesus is clear in Matthew 5, the text that we just read, that everyone who divorces except in the case of, and a lot of English translations will interpret that word as adultery or fornication. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually the Greek word porneia, okay? Wh which is a, a more broad term that is rightly translated, as the ESV translates it, as sexual immorality, right? Now again, some have translated that to mean adultery. I don't think that's wrong necessarily, but here's the thing. There's a Greek word for adultery and Jesus chooses not to use it here. He uses porneia, which is a, a more broad term for sexual immorality. So for sure, Jesus has, I think, in view adultery here, but I think it could expand to include other forms of sexual immorality or infidelity. Now, we, here's the deal. We don't have time to get into, uh, well, what about this situation? And what about that addiction? And what about that? We, we don't have time to get into all of that. That's where I think... I would advise you to come get individual pastoral counsel because each situation has far too many variables and nuances for me to just kind of stand up here and rattle off some cold list of facts. I don't think that would ultimately be helpful for any of us. But what Jesus seems to be saying here is there is something so sacred about the sexual union between a husband and a wife that when that one flesh relationship is breached, that sometimes, sometimes the marriage is irreparable sometimes. Now, let, let me also just say, just because Jesus allows for divorce in the case of sexual immorality doesn't mean he commands it. Those are two different things. Do you understand that? Just because he allows for it 
doesn't mean he commands it. I know dozens of marriages, some in this room right now, I'm looking at you in the face, who have survived sexual infidelity through years of hard work, tears, counseling, trust building, more tears, more hard work. And now you have beautiful, God-exalting, Jesus-centered marriages. And that's beautiful, right? Like I honor you if you've gone through that and you've come out on the other side. But I just wanna give you kind of biblical allowances for divorce. Number one on the screens would be adultery or better stated sexual immorality. Jesus is clear about that. There's no disputing that one. Now, um, are there others? This is where it gets kind of, people start to argue about it. Uh, don't turn there, but, but I'll put it on the screen for you. First Corinthians chapter seven. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Also a super depraved, sexually immoral, loose, crazy, hyper-divorced uh, culture uh, in that city. And he says this to them, to the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. So the picture is uh, one spouse is a believer. One spouse is a follower of Jesus. The other spouse is not. Now, some, some of you are in that situation. If, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents or, or is happy, you could, that can be translated happy to, is happy to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents or is happy to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul says, hey, listen, if you're married to an unbeliever and they abandon you, you're free. And you say, well, Chris, what, what if my spouse claims to be a believer and then they abandon me? Well, I'd say well, that, that puts us back to Matthew chapter 18, the route of church discipline and restoration, right? Where the offending party who has abandoned their spouse, one believer goes and challenges them to turn and repent. If that doesn't work, then two or three brothers and sisters go. They challenge that person who has abandoned their spouse to repent. And then Jesus says, the third step is you take it to the church. In our context, our interpretation would mean you take it to the elders. So if you take it to the elders of the church, the elders approach that person who has abandoned their spouse. They still won't repent. Jesus says you treat that person as an unbeliever. So we're right back to 1 Corinthians chapter seven, where if you've been abandoned, you're, as I understand it, you're free to leave the marriage. So that would be the second reason for divorce, would be abandonment. Now look, this is not a quick and easy thing. If you come to me tomorrow and, and say, hey, my husband has been, or my, my wife, what, I'm not signing off on it in that moment, right? This is after a lot of prayer. This is after a lot of wise counsel, this is after going and seeing a profession, professional Christian counselor. This is after many attempts of reconciliation. But this is clearly an allowable pathway for biblical divorce. So adultery and abandonment. Now, what I'm about to say next is where much disagreement arises historically in the church. So I, again, I'm telling you where I'm at. I'm not telling you this is our official stance and every elder here, every pastor here is gonna agree with me. I'm telling you this is, this is where, this is where I, I've landed. I think there's a third allowance for divorce that is actually related to the second one of abandonment, and that is abuse. Because I, I, see, I see abuse as a form of abandonment of the marriage covenant. Now, by, by abuse, let me, let me be clear. I don't mean, hey, pastor, my spouse was mean to me once. I don't mean she always hurts my feelings or he's rude to me sometimes. In our culture, we toss about the word abuse and we just make it mean whatever we wanna make it mean. That's, that's not what I'm talking about here when I say abuse. I have in mind the type of persistent torment where someone's safety is compromised, either a spouse or the children. See, for, for, for me, abuse is a form of abandonment of the marriage covenant. You say, Chris, where would you get that in the scriptures? I would go to passages like Exodus 21, where it says that if a, if a master strikes his bondservant, male or female, so someone working for, for him or her, then that person who's been physically harmed, they're free to leave the relationship. God gives them a pass to leave. 
How much more than in the institution of marriage where the husband is supposed to reflect Jesus and the wife is supposed to reflect the bride of Jesus, the church, would these principles be in play? Or how about Psalm 11.5 where God says this, my soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. See, pastors love to get up in the pulpit and they'll preach that verse out of Malachi. God hates divorce until they're blue in the face. But what about this one where God says, I hate the wicked and I hate the one who loves violence. What about that one? And I think, we, I think we have to consider these things in the nature and character and the heart of God. Now, even if you disagree with me that abuse constitutes grounds for divorce, at the very least, anybody on our leadership team would counsel legal separation for the safety of all involved. You need to know that. So let me, let me just say to any woman who maybe is in the room, and I'm guessing there's probably more than a few, uh, maybe watching online, and you're currently in a dangerous, abusive situation, I want you to hear me say this. God's heart for you, dear sister, is not to be a punching bag or a slave. You are a beloved daughter. And his desire for you is to walk in peace and freedom. And I want you to know, you are deeply loved by your God and your church family. And if you're in that situation, here's my plea to you. Seek help. Do not feel like God's call on your life is to stay there and be abused and tormented by some fool under the name and guise of biblical marriage. In fact, I'll just give you a resource on the screen for you. This is a great organization right here in in town called Helpmate. You can go to helpmateonline.org. There's a hotline right there that you can snapshot or or just memorize. I would encourage you, sister, if you're in that situation, get help. This is not God's design for you. Now, I want you to listen. Um, I'm convinced that by allowing divorce in these rare circumstances, we're actually preserving the meaning of marriage, right? Because if if a spouse is committing adultery against the covenant of marriage or abusing against the covenant of marriage or abandoning against the covenant, man, we're not honoring the institution of marriage by insisting that it stay together while we watch it be used as an instrument of pain and destruction in someone's life when it's meant to be a picture of Jesus loving his church. Makes zero sense. So in summary, I'd see biblically permissible reasons for divorce. I would just call them the three A's. Adultery, abandonment, abuse. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Now again, some of you are gonna think I've gone too far. Others of you for sure are gonna think I haven't gone far enough. That's where, that's where I land. Adultery, abandonment, abuse. Now notice what's not on the list. That may be just as important as what's on the list. I want you to hear what's not on the list. We fell out of love. We hear that a lot in our culture, don't we? And I've heard it said, you don't fall out of love, you fall out of repentance. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Here's another one I hear a lot. Uh, We grew apart. What does that even mean? Grow back together. We grew apart. What kind of foolish, I don't even know what you're talking about. What about this one? I hear this one all the time. We changed or they, he changed, she changed. What did you think was going to happen over the course of 50 or 60 years? You think the cat that you married when you were 23 was going to be the same when he was 43 or 63? Are you serious? They changed? Of course they changed. This is what marriage is in a a big sense. I think we ought to put this in all the marriage vows that we do at New Life Moving Forward. When, When you get married, this is what marriage is. Marriage is saying, I am committed to you and all the ways you will change. I am committed to you and all of the ways that you're gonna change. Five years from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now. I'm committed not to this person I'm looking at today. I'm committed to that person 10 years from now, 30 years from now. I'm committed to you too. What Jesus is saying is, look, in my kingdom, in my kingdom, I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what your friends say. Marriage matters in my kingdom. And it leads right to point number two, truth number two on the screen. Divorce is tragic 
and a last resort. Divorce is tragic and a last resort. Divorce is permissible in some cases, but never preferable. Listen, y'all, I have seen Jesus restore and redeem too many marriages that seemed hopelessly lost from a human perspective for me just to throw in the towel. I've seen it dozens of times. Now, here, here's the last truth. Let me, let me give you, whether you're single, whether you've walked through divorce, whether you're walking through a divorce, whether you're walking through a hard marriage or you've got a great marriage today, here's the third truth. You need to cling to this one. Number three, Jesus heals broken stuff. Jesus heals broken stuff. Now, sometimes there are layers to this and it's complex and it takes a lot of counseling and experts and blah, 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 blah. But sometimes it's so simple that we can miss what's right in front of our face. All right, I'll give you one example. There was a man who came to me at a church that I served at previously and he, he wanted to grab lunch and, and we sat down and he was in tears. And they had three little kids and he said, Chris, I think it's over. I think the marriage is over. She, I want to fight, but she, she doesn't, she doesn't want, she's, she's pursuing divorce. And so I just asked him some questions. Hey, like what's led to this? What's going on? And like the more we talked, the more it seemed like there wasn't anything, like there wasn't any of the three A's that was going on. Nobody was being abused. Nobody was being abandoned. Nobody had had an affair. There was nothing like that. And I said, look, man, here, here's the deal. Before we talk about divorce, before we even talk about uh, Christian counseling, I'm gonna give you three homework assignments this week, okay? Three very simple homework. This is what I want you to do. I said, you work, she works. Yeah, yeah, we both work. Are there times where you're home and she's not? Yes. So here's what you're gonna do. Homework assignment number one is I want you to clean the entire house from top to bottom. You clean the dishes, you make the bed, you, you clean, and then you keep your mouth shut. You don't, you, don't, you don't let her walk in the door and look at what I did and start patting yourself on the back and see what I do for you and you never do for No, 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 you shut your mouth. You clean that up. And here's the second homework. I want, you to, I want you to send her flowers to her office. Not for her birthday, not for Valentine's, just send her flowers. And here's the third homework assignment. I want you to find three, three times during the week to leave her a hidden note. So you can get up early in the morning. You can put it on her steering wheel before she drives to work. You can put it under her pillow while she's sleeping so she finds it when she wakes up. You can do whatever you want. And, just, and it can be something simple like, I love the way you laugh. Or I love the way that you love our kids. And he, he kind of looked at me like, dude, you're crazy. This is so dumb. I said, just try it. We'll meet again for coffee next week. And all of a sudden, a week later, I saw them on social media and it looked like they were newlyweds on their honeymoon. I mean, pictures of them like kissy face, like selfie. And I'm like, dude, what is going on? Like she's all over him. And I called him, I'm like, dude, what happened? He's like, it's crazy, it worked. <laughs> it's like the ice melted away and she's warm towards me. Like we can't keep our hands off each other. Like this is incredible, bro. Like you're a genius. I'm like, I'm not a genius. I told you to do three simple things that you should be doing anyway, you moron. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and here's the deal. All she needed was to feel seen, loved, and cared for. That's all she needed. Ten years later, they're still married. Their kids are going off to college. I heard just recently there's a marriage podcast. I don't even know which one it was, but there was a wife and a husband talking, and they were asking the, the wife, hey, how do you... How do you keep a, such a strong marriage? And she said, one of the things I do, I practice this weekly is I just send him texts when he's at work. And they're just random things like, you're the greatest man I've ever known. You're the strongest man I've ever known. And she said, I know if he's having a rough day, I, I send him a text and, and say, I, we're in this together. I believe in you more than anybody has ever believed in you. We're gonna get through this together. I have your back to the end. And I, I, I just, I just, I kind of, I hear that and, and I think, man, here's the deal. That, that man, after he gets a text message like that, he's gonna show up with a bouquet of flowers in his back pocket, right? A, a, a dish rag in one hand and a vacuum cleaner in the other hand, right? He, that, that man, that man is going to run through a brick wall for that woman. Why? Because she just lit something in his soul that he needs. Listen, some of y'all don't have a bad marriage. Some of you don't have evil spouses. A lot of you just haven't carved out enough time from your busy schedule to love each other well. 
And I want you to understand, sometimes the hardest situations have the simplest solutions. Divorce is almost always, almost always, not the best answer. Now, I know what some of you are, are thinking right now. Some of you are swimming in condemnation because you're realizing maybe for the first time that you walked through a divorce or maybe even you initiated a divorce that had no biblical grounds. I had a guy come to me one time and he said, hey, Chris, okay, I, th I think I know what I need to do. I need to divorce my second wife and go back and figure out how to remarry my first wife. And what do you think I said to that guy? <laughs> no, no, man, that's not the point. You can't fix the past by destroying the present. You can't, you can't do that. You can't fix the past by going and mangling what you have right now, right? Like if you're, I want you to hear this. If you're in a covenant marriage with a spouse today for the second time, third time, 23rd time, you honor that covenant. And you walk out these principles right where your feet are. And there are others of you, I know, and, and what you're thinking is, man, I have messed up so badly. Like, dude, I, I wasn't even a Christian. I didn't know all this stuff. Or even worse, I knew but didn't care. Some of you for sure are thinking, man, my, my current marriage was actually started. It was founded in sin. Like, is this marriage cursed? Where does this leave me, Chris? My sin is great. Here, here's, here's where it leaves you, friend. Your sin may be great, but God's grace is greater still. Your sin may be great, but God's grace is greater still. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 and 8 says, man, I don't, I don't even understand my own actions. Have you ever been there? It's like, I don't even understand why I do what I do. It's like the things that I want to do are the things that I don't do. And the things over here that I, that I don't want to do, these are the things that I do. And he goes, oh, wretched body, who will save me from this body of death? And then he utters these most hopeful words and he says, praise God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the very next chapter, he utters some of the most beautiful words ever uttered. He says, now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. In fact, I wanna put those four words on the screen for you. I am not condemned. Now listen, if you're here and you love Jesus and you follow Jesus, I want you to say these words with me right now. One, two, three. I am not condemned. Now you're gonna say it like you mean it. I am not condemned. If you are in Christ, do not live in shame and condemnation. You are freed under the blood of Jesus Christ. Now if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are under the condemnation and wrath of God. You need to know that. But you also need to know that you've been invited, like there's a seat at the table in the kingdom of Jesus with your name on it. And you're invited into his kingdom to taste of the forgiveness of your sins and walk in the freedom that's available for those of us who know and love the Savior. And that's worth celebrating this morning, I think. Would you bow your heads with me? I wanna just quickly give you a couple of applications and then we'll be done. Two applications. One, I want you to remember the primary purpose in marriage is to, to display Jesus and his relentless love for his bride. So I just want to say, listen, if you're in the room this morning and watching online, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, listen to me. Before you try to fix anything in your marriage, before you try to fix anything horizontal, you got to get your relationship, your vertical relationship with Jesus fixed first. If that's where you are, you're at and you're like, man, I don't know Jesus. I'm not following Jesus. I'm not living in his kingdom. I'm not living by his values. I'm not living by his principles. I don't know. That's okay. We were all there once, but, he, but here's your next step. Plead the mercy and blood of Jesus over your sin. Turn from your sin. Pledge your whole life and your allegiance to King Jesus. And just say to him, God, I'm, I'm tired doing life my way. I want to do life your way. I want to follow your word. I want to follow your spirit. So I just, I just want to give my life to you, Jesus. I want to follow you. I don't, I don't want to 
be the captain of my own ship, the master of my own destiny. Like, I've tried that, and it's not working out. So, God, I'm just giving you my life, and I'm opening up my heart to you. Would you save me? Would you redeem me? Would you forgive me of my sin? Friend, if that's where you're at, find freedom and hope and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you're here and and you're married, here's what I want to say. If it's even a little bit viable, listen, friend, fight for your marriage. If it's even a little bit viable, fight for your marriage. It's worth it. Jesus is saying, I have a high view of marriage in my kingdom. And if you're going to be my follower, you also must adopt a high view of marriage in my kingdom. If you're married, fight! Don't you throw in the towel and walk away before you've given it everything that you got. You fight for that marriage. You fight for her. You fight for him. And if you're here and you're like, God, but it's too late, man. Like I walked through unbiblical divorce and I didn't, like it wasn't for one of those three reasons you put on the screen. That's where you're at. Listen, friend. Get along with the Lord. Confess it to him. Confess that you've done it wrongly, that you've done it your way instead of his way. Repent from that. And then listen, friend, you get up, you wipe away the tears and you bathe in his forgiveness and grace. Bask in it. Live in it. You're not condemned if you're in Christ. If you're here and you're single, listen to me, single folks, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Pursue someone who loves him more than they love you. I don't care if he's cute or funny or she's hot. I don't care. Do they love Jesus, are they running hard after the Savior? Then run with them for a while and see if they might be the one for you. But in all of this, this is hard. Let's love each other well. Let's honor our King. And listen, wherever you are this morning, know that you are deeply, deeply loved by a really big, really good God. Let's pray and then we're going to sing. God, we come to you. And we thank you for the gift that is marriage. Thank you that we don't have to accept some flimsy version that the culture sells us, some some Hollywood version that's going to leave us destitute and disappointed in all of our relationships, God. But you've painted for us a higher picture, a more compelling picture, a more beautiful picture of Jesus pursuing his bride, the church. God, would you help us step into that? to reject what the culture says about marriage and embrace what you say about marriage, to adopt a high view of loving one another well in our homes. God, for the person that's maybe feeling that weight, that condemnation, God, I pray that they would, if they're in Christ, that they would reject that as as words from their enemy, that they would embrace the fact that you offer brand new starts and new beginnings and scriptures say that your mercy is new every morning, God. So would we, would we bask in your forgiveness and your grace and not be enslaved to our decisions and sins of the past, God? Whatever the case is, God, would we honor you? Would you teach us to walk in your kingdom, to adopt your values for our good and for your glory? pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand with me?